iPad into my black case before we got on the ferry. When I see Agnes's purple suitcase, bought for this trip after hours of deliberation in Bloomingdale's with her father, someone towards the front of the line, one of those ingratiatingly jocular construction workers, is holding it, and I'm making my way towards him, incensed. In New York, yes, we expect this sort of thing, and we're on constant alert for opportunistic raids by the needy and the greedy. When so many haves exist in close proximity to so many have-nots, it's the have-a-littles, the ones without good security and insurance, who lose out. So we're careful. It's part of the deal in high-density city living. But here, so much for the friendly isle, How low can you get? Stealing a child's suitcase? My way is blocked, and I'm about to shout, do they have cops here, as the bag and the thief's broad back shrink into the distance when I look up and see a group of islanders in glistening rainwear standing on the dock above us. Teenagers loll against the harbour wall while a grinning old couple look down at the boat and wave an umbrella at a red-headed young woman in front of me. Now, as if choreographed, the teens walk over to join other islanders, and together they form a chain with the ferry skipper, the first mate, and the passengers at the front of the line, who are beginning to climb the pier steps onto what is disingenuously called dry land. They're passing the boat's cargo, the sack of post, bags of grain, boxes of groceries, the cans of engine oil, and all the luggage. Our luggage. Agnes's bag, mine, the document box, up the stairs and along the dock to the harbour wall, where they set it down gently in an orderly pile. The islanders disperse, and Agnes and I are alone. The rain has intensified. It's like standing under the power shower in my Cobble Hill gym. My former gym. Agnes puts up her hood and gamely insists on manoeuvring her own case, which has wheels and a long handle. A granny bag, she calls it, approvingly. My own two suitcases, also wheeled, are larger, and I balance on them the sealed waterproof box containing my copies of the rudimentary archive that's more valuable than any of our possessions. Still smarting with shame at my metropolitan misanthropy, my first response to the vista, the long, low line of whitewashed crafts curving round the bay, the dark hills whose tops are hidden in clouds, is dismay. This is to be our home for two years. For this, we've given up our comfortable rent-controlled apartment in Brooklyn, Agnes's place at a friendly public elementary school with excellent math scores, our friends, stores and cafes, concerts and cinemas, proximity to airports, railroads, other cities, other lives, my daughter's father, my relationship. Agnes, though, has perked up. She's seen the grocery store, distinguished from the other whitewashed buildings by the red pillar box at its entrance, and a faded advert for ice cream in its window. Ice cream, she says, instantly won over. We go inside and I announce myself to a cautious young South Asian man behind the till. 
he directs me to the post office counter, where a woman, pale, middle-aged and unsmiling, looks up briefly from a stack of parcels and asks, Are you Mary MacPhail? As if another American with a nine-year-old child would abandon her life, travel all this way, and put up with the discomfort and grim weather in an effort to pass herself off as me. At least the postmistress pronounces my name correctly. Mary, as in M-A-R-R-Y, not Myri or Mary or Marie. Not even, as some Gallic purists insist, Vari or any of the other weird variations that made me, as a chippy teenager, consider changing my name to Jane. She rummages in a drawer, hands me the key, and points left in the direction of our rented cottage, number 19.